Well, you may be seated, and as you're seated, let me read God's word for us this morning from 1 John 3, verse 11 to 24. And before I do that, let me encourage you to pin this screen to help with listening, and together we'll listen as God's people, united by his spirit, though far apart. 1 John 3, verse 11 to 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning that as John has just reminded us, the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives in us reassures us this morning that we are indeed of the truth as we go about these acts of love to those in the church, to our brothers and sisters on this call. And so, Father, we ask that we be a community that deeply loves one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for for many people, one of the great mysteries of Christianity is this, how could a religion that talks so much about love, that professes to have love at its center, how could a religion like this result in followers who experience and maybe even create so much conflict in the wider culture? It seems to me, at least, and maybe it seems this way to you, that if Christianity was truly about love, its followers would seamlessly integrate into the world, right? Who is opposed to love? My big contention today, however, is this. The life of love does not look like you think it does. The life of love, it does not look like you think it does. I'm not sure if you've experienced this before, 
But before you go to a meeting, back when we had meetings in person, do you remember that? You'd go to like a place and you'd see someone and you'd talk to them and they'd be like a physical person. Back when we had meetings, what would you do before the meeting? And maybe this is just me and maybe this is just strange, but I would look up that person on social media, especially if I've never met them before. I want to know what their deal is, right? Who they are, what they're about. And as you scroll, or as I scroll through their social media page, you begin to develop a vision for that person, right? What they look like, how they might talk in person, how they would carry themselves. Inevitably, of course, the day of that meeting comes and you soon discover that the vision of the person that you had built up in your head is in fact quite different than the person in reality. They're, they're a whole different person altogether. In the same way, since the 18th century and the rise of romanticism, most of the Western world has been scrolling through the same profile of love. And what does that profile look like? Well, in a, a 2016 Time magazine article, uh, the British philosopher Alain de Botin typifies the love of the Romantic period, this love that we've inherited, this love that's on that social media page, by saying a few things. This is what's true of love in our day and age. Romanticism believes that choosing a partner should be about letting oneself be guided by feelings rather than practical considerations. So historically, you know this, people got married for, for practical reasons, right? For practical reasons, right? Like the money they had uh, and, and, you know, you could join your land together and together, you know, you could have lots of kids and they could work the land. But in the romantic period, we said this, it's not enough that you can provide for me and my kids. I want to feel a certain way when I'm with you. I want those butterflies. I want that excitement. Botan also says in the same Time Magazine article, romanticism proposed that true love must mean an end to all loneliness. So not only does that other person have to create feelings inside of you, they have this immeasurable pressure to complete you. This is the Jerry Maguire effect, right? You complete me, right? It's this belief that I'm in an incomplete half until that person comes into my life. And basically, what we get from romanticism and the love it's given us is that at the center of love is me. Is me. Me. My feelings informed by my eternal dialogue working to the end of my true happiness and my completeness. And what John will tell us today is that the life of love does not look like you think it does. We'll see what I mean by that as we look at what love is in its origins. This is the outline for you. Its origins, here we'll see two ways that we can live. We'll see love in its outworkings, what a life of love exemplified looks like. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see an offer and we'll ask the question, do you want this? And so if you missed that, origins, outworkings, and an offer, three O's, you're welcome. I worked very hard at that uh, this week. Origins, outworkings, offer. Here we go. Our reading this morning began by contrasting two ways to live. Did, did you see the two ways? 
Look at verses 11 and 12. And the first way of living is found in these two verses. For this is the message, John writes, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. If you're unfamiliar with the biblical story, we find the story of Cain and Abel early in our Bibles in Genesis 4, near the very front. And Cain and Abel, the first brothers, are also the first, really, to worship God, to worship him, to bring an offering to him. And Genesis 4 tells us that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, to you and me, uh, not well-versed in the hierarchy of ancient Near Eastern sacrifices, let me explain to you which of these sacrifices is better. It's Abel's. Abel's is better. Cain gives a portion of his harvest, which is good and right and, and fine, but Abel gives the firstborn of his flock and, and the tastiest bits as well, the, the fat portions, right? I love that inclusion. One Bible teacher, he helps us understand what's happening here by saying this. Cain threw a tip on the table, but Abel gave his best. Cain gave gave out of his income, but Abel gave out of his capital. Cain made a gesture of thanks, but Abel risked his future growth potential by giving God some of his breeding stock. The difference between these two men was tokenism versus love. And God took it seriously. Cain's relationship to God is not one of love. And what is the result? When he sees the love of Abel, it acts, as Ortland will continue to say, as a living reproach on him and on his life. I don't know if anybody on this call can relate to this, but growing up in my home, I was the bad kid. Uh, My older siblings were loving followers of Jesus uh, who did well in school, were popular and successful, and generally obeyed my parents. And I did not want to do that. There was no fun in that for me. And so I was the bad kid. And because my older siblings loved Jesus and I did not, I hated them. I hated them. I did not hate them because they were mean They were and are, if they're listening right now, amazing people. I did not hate them because they were overly judgmental all the time. They lovingly shared the gospel with me. I hated them because their love for God was an indictment on my hatred of him, on my hatred of his way of living in this world. In them, my older siblings, I saw what I was not. In them, I saw my failure. Maybe you can relate to this. The first way we can live this morning is in the path of Cain. Cain, who did not love the Lord, and it showed. It showed in his offering. And because Cain did not love the Lord, and Abel did, he hated Abel. Abel, whose sacrifice of love condemned Cain's lovelessness. And here's the first thing we have to see. 
the life of love will not be received like you think it will. We think, and we saw this last week, if we live a life of love, we'll generally be accepted by this world. And yet again, John reminds us, do not be surprised when this world hates you. It's against you. See, ultimately, why did Cain hate Abel? John says in verse 15 of 1 John chapter 3, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The way of Cain is the way of this world. His hatred, his murder, is the fruit of having no eternal life at the root. But is there another way? I said that there are two ways to live. John tells us in verse 16 of another man. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. He continues, By this we know, love, that he, speaking of Jesus, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Notice the order of that verse we just read. John is saying, Jesus' crucifixion on the cross as the Son of God in our place for lawless men and women, remember last week, for lawless men and women who hated him, this is the greatest act of love ever shown. All other acts of love, true love, are measured against this one act. This is the act of love par excellence. It's glorious. And because, John continues, of what Jesus did in giving us eternal life through his death, we can now be brought out from the lineage and the fruit of Cain. The life of love does not begin where you think it does. Listen to how one Bible teacher said it. Our love for one another is the flower and fruit that indicates eternal life is at the root. I want to say that again. Our love for one another is the flower and fruit that indicates eternal life is at the root. All of humanity begins in, in two places. And I love how binary John is. It's so unlike our world. All of humanity begins in two places, either with Cain producing the fruit of hatred, or with Christ. The good news of Christianity is this event that changes everything, that brings people into eternal life, is also the same event that empowers us to love. We did not do this. We do not have to do this. Our love is not self-generated, but at root is eternal life coming from the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross. I am so glad that my love is merely the fruit of his eternal life gifted to me and not the root or the source. Because as you well know, that well ain't deep enough. My efforts aren't good enough. This is where we must start this morning. Do we want to love one another? We have to realize that this love begins somewhere different than you think. But if our true love, 
has its origins at the cross of Jesus. It also, John tells us, the flower and the fruit will look a certain way. It will have, this is point number two, certain outworkings. Certain outworkings. This is love lived out. If you have your Bibles, go back to verse 18. We're going to read all the way to verse 22. So we're in point number two now, outworkings. What does this love look like? John continues to say, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. How does the love of Christ for us change how we live today? I think John gives us three outworkings or three sort of examples of this love when its origin is in Jesus, when its origin is in the cross. The first outworking is abundantly clear, maybe even too clear for our liking. John says in verse 17 to 18, in a way only John can, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let me just pause for a second. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is it doesn't. God's love doesn't abide in him. We keep on reading. Little children. I love how John intersperses these loving, beloved comments in between these hard words. He continues, little children. Let's not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If you've been tracking with our Bible reading plan throughout this year, which you can find on our website, you may have seen in this verse some similarities of what John commands here and what Moses commanded in places like Deuteronomy 15. Let me read to you a section from verses 7 to 8 of Deuteronomy 15. Here in giving the law, Moses says this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns, within your land, the Lord your God is giving you. Listen to what he says. Listen to the language Moses uses. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. As we continue to read our Bibles, continue along the story of the Bible, we see that, yes, there is to be outside generosity, but primarily there is to be generosity within the people of God. The people of God are to be marked internally with material, financial generosity to one another, sacrificial generosity. And so when we come to uh, the book of Acts and Luke's recording of the birth of the early church, we should not be surprised to find in Acts 2, verses 44 to 46, these words. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, and listen to this language again, with glad and generous hearts. Don't harden your heart. Don't close up your heart. Open your heart from, from Deuteronomy all the way to John and 1 John. This is the message. 
Open your heart. In Acts, in Deuteronomy, in John, generosity is a matter of the heart. In effect, Moses and Luke and John are all asking the question, what is your heart disposition towards the people of God? And if it's truly one of generosity, it will not manifest in mere encouragement. Or as James says, empty sentiments like, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. That's James 2.16. No, generous hearts will lead, and I want to be so specific here, to material generosity within the church, amongst the church. And my encouragement to you this morning, Christ City, is in your sacrificial giving, which you are so good at, don't overlook the church. Should you be material, materially generous to your Buddhist neighbor? Yes. Should you be materially generous to that parachurch organization doing fantastic work? Yes. But if your money and resources are primarily allocated in these two arenas, you've missed a fundamental tenet of Christianity. Is love expressed in sacrificial, material generosity within the church, the brothers and sisters. Christian, the life of love might not look like you, even you, think it does. But John continues, there are still more good outworkings of this life of love rooted in Christ. Look at verses 19 to 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What's happening here? John here, he is doubling down on what he just said. And as if he's anticipating Romanticism, like 19th century romanticism, he's essentially saying this, generously show your love for the church even when you don't feel like it. That's what he's saying. Show your love for the church even when you don't feel like it. This is love not divorced from feeling, but neither is it entirely dependent on feeling. Let me show you this. We read in verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. The by this, of course, is in reference back, right, to our generosity within the church. It is by and through this generosity that we are to have confidence that we are of the truth. But we all know this. There is another thought that arises in our head just as we're about to be generous to the church and that thought sounds something like this. Ready? Is this really necessary? I could just text these people and tell them I'm praying for them. Or maybe, you know what, my generosity might embarrass them. I wouldn't want them to feel like a charity case. 
And really, you know what? It's best I don't give. We're not just quite there financially on our end right now to, to give in that way. It would cost us too much. I'll, I'll, I'll just text them. I'll just text them. Do you know that thought? Have you experienced that thought before? I have. I have. Again, one Bible commentator explains what's going on in our passage like this. Listen to what he says. The demand for sacrificial charity has been made towards a poor man, one of your brethren. Then he says this, but a base thought arises in the heart of a Christian which condemns the sacrifice demanded as unnecessary, unnecessary, and suggests that it can be avoided and that love can be maintained apart from a definite surrender of life or goods. The sacrifice demanded as unnecessary, and this thought suggests that it can be avoided, that love can be maintained apart from a definite surrender of life or goods. And it's in these moments, John says, we need to reassure, or perhaps more accurately, persuade, persuade our hearts that the command really is for sacrificial generosity. That God's word did not misspeak. That what's written here really is true. The command really, truly is for sacrificial generosity, even though I don't feel like it. And then John adds, and by the way, the God who commands this sees and knows everything. Everything. The way to confidence, the way to confidence, consistent with what John has been saying all along, is actually in action. Loving your brother and sister in this way. The life of love does not look like you think it does. It does not rise and fall on how we feel. It does not rise and fall with my emotions. And we have before us this morning a clear command of Scripture. And our job, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is to hold on to this clear command for sacrificial material generosity while we wrestle our hearts into submission. Last outworking, and then we have an offer. Last outworking. Verse 22. This is good news. In case you're overwhelmed, this is good news. And whatever we ask, John continues to say, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Here's the good news. God loves to bless a life of love marked by sacrificial generosity. God loves to bless a life of love marked by sacrificial generosity. Now, John is going to qualify this verse later in chapter 5 when he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. Ready? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we don't pray Ferraris down from the sky but this is the takeaway. The life of love rooted in the cross of Christ, expressed in sacrificial, overflowing generosity, is a life that the Father loves to provide for. And some of you know this. Some of you are living this right now. 
If our aim is love, this love, John promises us our Father will hear us and we will receive according to his will. And while this is good news, we should also not miss the obvious connection John is making between our obeying life and our praying life, our doing life and our communing with God life. Here's what he's saying. There is no rich life of prayer outside of obedience expressed in loving and sacrificial generosity. There's no rich life of prayer without obedience. In the same way, there is no life of obedience that is not joyously supplied and nourished by a loving Father that we can come confidently before in prayer. Obedience and prayer are two sides of the same coin working together. Here's our last point. It's an offer. Origins, outworkings, and an offer. Do you want this true life of love? Do you want this? In that article on romanticism I quoted before, one of the conclusions Alain de Botin makes is this, that romanticism has been a disaster for love. It's been a disaster for love. It is an intellectual and spiritual movement which has had a devastating impact on the ability of ordinary people to lead successful emotional lives. The vision of love, the social media page we've all been scrolling uh, through for the last few centuries, is poisonous. We've personally felt its emptiness. In its shallowness, we've all been left asking, is this all love is? Botan's correction of this shallow, superficial love, if you keep on reading in the article, is, is largely pragmatic, right? With some wisdom, he points us to previous eras where love was more realistic, more down-to-earth, more of a cost-benefit analysis. That's his solution. But even here, in Bataan's severe or cold version of love, we're again left to ask, is this all love is? It's either feeling or truth, and how do we reconcile these two things? And it seems an, an inescapable problem until we look at Jesus. Until we learn that in Jesus, we see both truth and love kiss. Author Tim Keller writes in his book on marriage these words. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without, without love is, is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. But listen, friend. God's saving love in Christ, however is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Let me read that one more time. God's saving love in Christ is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The good news 
is that you are worse than you think you are. But in Christ, you are more loved than you think you are. Not only does Jesus move us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace, it is the eternal life that becomes the root, producing the fruit and flower of love for one another. And my simple question this morning is this. Do you want this? Do you want this? Have you finally grown disillusioned with the love this world has to offer? Are you recognizing the emptiness and the vanity of the romantic ideal? The life of love not only does not look like you think it does, it begins in a way that no other love story does, simply by receiving, simply by receiving. John writes, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. The God who knows everything, everything about us, everything about me, all of my ugliness, all of our ugliness, all of the deeply shameful things that we have done, and all the good things that we have left undone. He still sends his son, Jesus Christ, to lay down his life for us. He knows us entirely and completely. And yet he loves us. And if you want to trust in his love today, I put my email address on the screen. I just want to encourage you. I would love to connect with you. I would love to explain the good news of Jesus to you. I'd love to talk to you more about God's love for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that because you sent your son Jesus to die for us, even while we were still sinners, because of that, when we trust in him, we are able to have at the root of our life Jesus and not Cain, but Jesus. And I thank you that from that root, there can grow a tree, there can grow a harvest of love for one another in the church. And so, Father, would you do that? For those on this call right now who don't know you, would you cause them now to believe in you, to, to trust in you? For those who do know you, Father, would we see an increase in our fruit of love to one another? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.